Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There is so much we can do to make this world a kind of better, happier place. There is so much we can do to change the world. If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. In this episode, Rabbi Manus Friedman talks to Rabbi Chase Taub. Ideas that can change the world? Well, here's one to start with. What is the essence of morality? The essential statement of all morality is, I may be stronger than you, but I may not take advantage of that. I may be more informed than you, I may not take advantage of that. The basic statement of morality is, that the rich may not abuse the poor, the strong may not abuse the weak, and those who know may not abuse those who are ignorant. Do not place a stumbling block before the blind. So what it's saying is, in this world, people are not equal. Some have all the advantages and all the benefits, and some have none. But when you find yourself in a position of privilege, when you find yourself in a position of power, you may not use that against someone who doesn't have that power. That's, that's it. That's basic morality. To try to believe that all people are equal and that there is no difference between us almost sounds like a substitute for morality. It's almost like, like saying, you know, if I ever believed that I was stronger than you, <laughs> I would beat you up. If I felt that I was more informed and I was more intelligent than you, I would mislead you. I would lie to you. I would misinform you. I would play with your head. So since I don't want to do that, I have to convince myself that I don't know any more than you do. I'm not stronger than you. I'm not the fastest gun in the West, because if I was, I would probably shoot you. Which means we're living in an amoral society. Morality does not dictate our behavior. So what can change the world for the better is to go back to the principle of morality. The rich may not take advantage of the poor. To make everybody rich is not a moral solution, even if it were realistic. How do you like that for an idea? It's a very interesting idea because you're, you know that you are speaking from bias. I think you're very, yes, I think you're very influenced. White privilege? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, I wasn't thinking of that, but you're you're speaking very Jewishly, and you're taking. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Well, you're taking for granted that your Jewish definition of morality is universal. Uh, how about the biblical? Yeah, well, that biblical is just euphemistic for Jewish. Oh, okay. 
That's when we don't want to say Jewish, we say biblical. Um, do you know that the basis for mystical anti-Semitism, according to Hitler, Yamak Shemai, was precisely your definition of morality? He writes about it in Mein Kampf. What did you say, the mystical definition? Yeah, the mystical definition, right. There was the economic argument, but there was also a mystical uh, argument, which is like this. First of all, the Nazis weren't Christian, they were pagans. In fact, Hitler saw Christianity as a Trojan horse for Jewish ideas. It's just Judaism in disguise. And what did he believe? He believed in the power of nature. Pagans worship the power of nature. The Rebbe speaks about this, by the way, in a, in a Mikhtav Klali, in, a, in, a, in an open letter. Um, the Rebbe would write open letters pre periodically. One of them was uh, always before Pesach, or for the Rebbe's birthday, which is uh, a few days before Pesach. And there's a letter there that speaks about why does the Torah say that the exodus happened in Chodesh HaOviv, the month of the spring. And one of the things that Rebbe says is because the spring is the height of the pagan year. That's when you see that nature is an unstoppable force because even though it goes dormant during the winter, but everything revives in the spring. So Hashem specifically chose to devastate Egypt at a time when paganism is most strong in the world. At any rate, so if nature made me stronger than you, then it's only right, so it's a different way of defining morality, it's only moral that I use that strength. If nature gave me the ability to do something, then it's only right to use that ability. That's the worship of nature. Nature gave me an ability, and not only would it be uh, cowardly to not act on it, but it would be immoral from a pagan standpoint, from a nature-worshipping standpoint. And um, they say that Nietzsche would be horrified by Nazism, but obviously a lot of the uh, basis for this, uh, for this idea is the idea of, of, of Nietzsche, about the, which is also influenced by or, influ or, or influenced sort of the philosophy of Darwinism. You know, Darwinism is, 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 a, is a theory, but it's also a, it's, it's a cultural view, survival of the fittest. So what's the, what's the moral implication of survival of the fittest is that it's moral to outdo the competition. At any rate, what I'm saying is when you, you're saying to me that morality is not to exploit weaknesses, I'm saying that's a very Jewish definition of morality. There is another definition of morality, which is morality is precisely the exploitation of weaknesses so that strength, natural strength, can flourish. And in that worldview, might makes right is not said cynically whatsoever. Might makes right is said, like we say in... in, in uh, in Torah learning, we say, it's said very, no inflection with no hint of sarcasm, might makes right. That is the, and, and, and if you don't believe, 
trust your senses, look in the world. If power was endowed to a certain force or people or, or individual or, or tool, then trust what you see. The world is telling you that this thing ought to prevail and whatever it can eliminate ought to be eliminated. What do you say to that? Thin the herd. Thin the herd, that's right. <clears throat> that's right. And it would be immoral to not allow the weak to be, uh, to, to, to be thinned out. You're going to create a, a crisis and you're going to, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not pleasant. Nobody likes to do it. Yeah, but somebody's got to. <laughs> somebody's got to do it. If you don't let the hunters shoot the deer, then it causes disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a strange use of the word morality. Like, you are obligated to do that? Obligated? First of all, obligated by whom? And secondly... By if, nature. If survival of the fittest is a natural process, just sit back and watch it happen. No, but that's the thing. The people are so perverse, they can thwart nature. Oh. They can thwart nature. They could not allow nature to take its course. So human and beings are above Judaism, Do you know what Judaism teaches? To thwart nature. Do exactly. not allow nature to take its course. Judaism puts into place all these rules that tell us, don't let nature take its course. Which is expressed in the statement... Be fruitful and multiply, fill the world, and conquer it. Harness nature. I think I like the Jewish definition better. I told you you were biased. <laughs> By the way, there's a, there's a famous scene in the movies from the 40s. I think it was the 40s or the 50s. There's this uh, African queen. The African queen is, is a boat, and the, the the captain of the boat is Humphrey Bogart, and he's an alcoholic in this, uh, in this movie. And uh, there's this one scene where he's just finishing a bottle and he throws it onto the river. And there's this lady, she's a missionary, and uh, she chastises him. It's Catherine Hepper, and she chastises him, Humphrey Bogart for, for, for drinking. And uh, he says, but it's only natural. It's only human nature to drink. And she says, Captain, human nature is what we were sent here to overcome. She didn't chastise him for polluting the river no. or, the, or the ocean? No. no. <laughs> that hadn't come up yet, huh? Okay, so what is, what is your idea to change the world? I like your idea. An idea that can make a big difference. Well... I'll stick with your idea, but I think that there's a, there's a prerequisite to that, which is that um, in order to appreciate morality as you've just described it, a person has to be able to think abstractly. You have to think in terms of ideas and not in terms of things. Because if you're locked into concrete thinking and you can only relate to things, then the worldview that nature is to be preserved and to be uh, worshipped really is very compelling. Unless you have some other values that, can, uh, that, are, that are not to be learned through your senses. If, you're, if you only have the five senses 
then basically, yeah, whatever is physical is real, and whatever is real should uh, prevail. So you need to have an ability to even think abstractly. You know, right and wrong are abstract concepts. That's why you don't find right and wrong in the animal kingdom, because animals are thinking concretely. So I think before we can even talk about morality, the way that you're, you're defining reality, which is a very abstract notion of, of morality and a very unnatural um, definition of morality, uh, we need to have the capacity to think beyond just sensorial input. And I would argue that there's a big lack of that. That's what you have. You ever had the experience where you're trying to explain something to somebody and you realize that it's too philosophical. So you give them a metaphor, right? You give a metaphor and you say, you know, it's like, it's like a guy and he's driving a car on the highway and, uh, He's gunning it, and, and he's trying to pass another car. Whatever, you're using it as a metaphor. And then the person says, yeah, what color is the car? And you realize, I'm using this as a metaphor. They're not hearing a metaphor. They're hearing a story about a car. It has nothing to do with a car. I'm not talking about a car. The car is an illustration of a principle. What's a principle? A principle is an abstraction. A car is a thing. What color is that thing? So I think... There's a language problem and a thinking problem that comes before um, we can even discuss morality. Well, that, make, that reminds me of another interesting concept. What really is the unique nature of a Jew or of a human being? What makes the human being different from the rest of creation besides the fact that he pollutes nature? besides the fact that he can ruin everything. So here's a very interesting, maybe a somewhat poetic definition. The mineral, the vegetable, and the animal are perfectly content being what they were created to be. And they're loyal to it. They never, they never digress. The mineral is always a mineral, the vegetable is always a vegetable, the animal is always an animal. And if you don't interfere, if you allow them their space or their needs, they're perfectly happy. The definition of a human being is that the human is never content being what he was created to be. He has a need to add something to contribute something beyond what he was given. So the definition of a human being is that he is never content being human. That's the difference between the human being, the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral. So if a human being says, just give me a little space, a little freedom to roam, a little freedom to explore, and I'm going to be happy. Well, then you're an animal. If you say, just don't, don't step on me, don't choke me, um, don't neglect me, and I'll be happy, you're sounding like a, like a, like a, flat, like a plow, a flower or a plant. And if you say, 
just don't destroy me, you're sounding like a mineral. Mm -hmm. The human being is not human if he is content with what he's given. So you're right. The human being is always looking for something that is not physical, that is not apprehensible by the, uh, by the senses. Is that, is that the right English? Apprehended by, by the senses. He's looking for something superhuman. Otherwise, he's not content to be just human. And then you go looking. What is there besides human? I don't want to deteriorate to an animal, but I'm not content being a human. Where do we go? And that's where the Torah comes in. God introduces himself and gives us an outlet, gives us an opportunity to be something more than human. We can be somewhat divine. And the beginning of that is morality. You know, in uh, Pirkei Oves, it says that the Jewish people are beloved because they're called Hashem's children. And um, not only are they called Hashem's children, but they know that they're called Hashem's children. Um, so that's talking about the, the Jewish people. You are children to the, to, the, to, the, to the Lord your God. But then there's another thing that Pirkei Oves says right after that, which is that humanity in general, so this is a distinction. This is not uniquely Jewish. Humanity um, were created in the image of God. And that's a show of love, that Hashem loves humanity, that he created them in his image. And not only does he create them in his image, but he lets them know. He let them know he's created in their image. Um, so what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Because obviously, uh, you know, anthropomorphism, is, uh, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say obviously, but according to Maimonides' 13 principles, uh, we don't have an anthropomorphic God. So what does it mean we're created in Hashem's image? Siddhis explains that the Tzela Melakim, the image of God, which is um, in every human being, it's not uniquely Jewish, is the Nefesh HaSichlis, the intellectual soul. What's the difference between the nefesh hasichlis and the nefesh abamis, the intellectual soul and the, and the animal soul? When I say animal soul, obviously you understand I don't mean the soul of an animal. I mean the animalistic soul in a human. So the animalistic soul in a human, nefesh abamis, is exactly what you described. It wants comfort. It wants things to be okay. Nefesh hasichlis is not okay with being okay. The nefesh hasichlis, the intellectual soul, is always searching for something more. It's unsettled. And in, in Hasidic teachings, it compares it, I guess, in juxtaposition or in contrast to the animal soul, which is, which you, you, you probably won't be surprised, that the, the animal soul is metaphorically described as an animal. The, the intellectual soul is metaphorically described as a bird. It flies. And what does that mean? It means that there's a there's a image of God that Salamalakim in every human being that's never content just to be content. It's always looking for something higher. Now that doesn't necessarily mean godly, that's another discussion. But something spiritual, something abstract, something 
otherworldly. It can't just be content to be physically comfortable. And, and that's, that's what's uniquely human, about humans. Yes, I think the meaning, um, you are special because you're God's children, and you are uniquely special because you were told you were God's children. Why does that make us any better to be told? Because we're tr entrusted. God is actually has the confidence in us that by telling us that we are his children, we are not going to take advantage of that and abuse others who are not God's children. Human beings are special because they're created in God's image, and there is something really special about the fact that they are told that they are created in God's image. And by telling them, God is trusting the human being not to use that advantage and not be cruel to animals. So let me offer you a, a spin on that. Knowing that I'm a human being, means knowing that I can't just be content with nature. For me, the natural is unnatural. I can't just be content with, with creature comforts. Knowing that information, I'm not going to take advantage of that information and uh, exploit the rest of creation. So let, 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 let me put a spin on it. What's the best way to assure that I'm not just going to be the most dangerous predator, the top of the food chain, an animal that's able to outthink and therefore outlive every other animal? The best way to ensure that is to teach me that I'm not just an animal. So by teaching me that I'm human and that there's something more than just the physical world, that there's something spiritual, that actually is what makes me compassionate upon the rest of the world, animal, plants, inanimate, the environment, whatever it might be. So it's not just that he gives us that information, trusts us not to misuse it, but maybe even more than that, by giving us that information, that's what really guarantees that we're going to be stewards and not exploitative. Good point. So, what idea would you like to talk about? How do you uh, convince humans that they're human? Treat them like an animal. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, See how, they like it. how do you get a Jew to tell you how Jewish they are? Question their Jewishness. It always works. Oh, so you're not really that Jewish. Excuse me. <laughs> right? Right? Reverse psychology. Yeah, but what, what, what it really is the unique message of Judaism today? Not monotheism. We, we gave that away a long time ago. Right. What, what, what does the world need to know? That they can't get anywhere else? Yeah. That they still can't get anywhere else? Like, what, do we still what market do we still have a corner on? After all these centuries and millennia of, uh, of sharing information. Yeah. What do we still have left that's unique? I'll tell you. And it's based on an experience that I had. I used to study with this guy who was a Buddhist priest. 
Now, why did I study with him? Because he was a Jewish boy who became a Buddhist priest. And of course, when a Jewish boy becomes a Buddhist, he can't just be a regular Buddhist. He has to be a Buddhist priest. And he wasn't just a regular Buddhist priest. He was one of the world's foremost translators of Tibetan. Really, a real, he was a real guy. And he was brilliant. I used to study Chassidus with him. And just to give you an insight into his brilliance, when we would study a concept, not only would he understand the concept immediately and be able to converse about the concept, but he would immediately be able to tell jokes that were actually funny about the concept that he had just learned. Okay, that, that's, that's a level of depth, to be able to get the concept so well that you're already able to make jokes that are actually funny and correct about the subject matter. This guy was amazing. So he was a Jew, he was a Buddhist, he was a priest, he was a comedian. Yeah, he, was, he was even more things than that, but an amazing guy, just an amazing guy. And um, so I'll tell you, I have many stories about him. One of the stories that I think about all the time was we were learning, and all of a sudden he just, he got so excited. Excited is not the, the word, agitated. He got agitated. He starts saying, he says, nobody says this. Nobody says this. Nobody says this. And I said, what? What does nobody say? You guys, you, you guys are the only ones who say this. Nobody says this. So I'm thinking to myself, this guy has a PhD in philosophy from Princeton. This guy is a Buddhist priest. He knows a couple things. He's saying, nobody says this. I think I should listen and find out what it is that we're the only ones who said. Because this would let me know that this is a pretty big idea. So I said, what? What is it? What does nobody say? What are we the only ones who say? He says, nobody says this. Everyone else says the purpose of this world is that it's not real to overcome the, 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 the illusion of the world. Or maybe some will say, okay, there is some reality to the world, but it's only an intermediary phase in order to gain passage into a higher world. Nobody says that the point of it all takes place in this world. Nobody says this. And what do we say? We say that. That Hashem created the world because he desired to have a dwelling place in the lower realms. And, you know, the Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad in the beginning of the Hemshech Samech Vav, he goes through the different classical reasons that explain creation, and they all have validity. You know, that Hashem is good, and therefore the ultimate expression of his goodness is to create, and not just to create, but to create in a way that we can be partners with him and not to have bread of shame. Or begin the lay in order that he should be known. He wants to be known. If he, there's no other, then no one can know him. Uh, or um, that Hashem cannot just remain potential. Everything has to come to actuality. So creation is an expression of that potential. And he goes through all these different classical reasons that all have their sources, and he explains their validity. But he says there's one detail that none of them explain, and that is every one of these explanations for creation can be true if Hashem would have stopped with the spiritual worlds. 
It doesn't explain why he kept going and made a physical world. Because any of those other explanations can be just as true if Hashem had just created any semblance of a created reality, even a very ethereal created reality, and, and it would have been enough. The only explanation, and the source of it is the Medrash, Medrash Tanchoma, Parshas Nosai, the only explanation that explains why there's a physical world is the idea that he desired a dwelling place in the lowest type of reality. And what is the explanation for that? What is the attraction to the lowest possible existence? Well, as I'm sure you know, afataiva frekmen mishken kashis, that when somebody desires something, you can't force them to defend it rationally, because that's the whole point of a desire, is that I'm not claiming it's practical. If it were practical, maybe I could articulate why it's important. But this is deeper than that. I can't articulate it. So it is a deep desire. It is, in fact, the deepest desire. I understand, but the desire for what? What exactly is he desiring? So one way to say it is he, he's desiring the ultimate paradox. The ultimate paradox. See, he is perfection, but he wants... Not his own perfection, he wants perfection that comes from imperfection. That's the ultimate paradox. Not just that perfection can exist alongside imperfection, but that imperfection can produce a greater perfection. Or, or, or put it this way, to say that the infinite is infinite is not a paradox. Even to say the infinite has room for the finite is not a paradox. But to say that the infinite can come from the finite that's a paradox so if you want to put it in philosophical terms what is this attraction he has it's the attraction to this ultimate paradox you're, you're using imperfection and finite they are uh, yeah 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 because the the infinite is perfect it's everything. It's got everything. Lacking nothing. The, the, the finite is always imperfect. When you're finite, there's always something you're missing. Namely, infinity. <laughs> that, that's, that, that covers pretty much all the things you're lacking. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's compounded with the fact that it's not just objective imperfection but he actually gave us the free choice to, to, to do damage. And how, do, how do you um, reconcile a perfect God having a passion or a desire? Is that metaphorical? You're saying if we make it metaphorical, then we don't have to really deal with it because it doesn't mean what it's saying. Yeah, that's one way to deal with every question. Ah. <laughs> Symbolism. Just a manner of speech. Right, right, right. No, he really, really desires it. He really desires it. Any explanation for that? Well, let, let, me, let me throw it back on you and say like this. Why does it require an explanation? Isn't it enough that he desires it? I'm really glad he does. <laughs> 
And I'm not complaining. That that's what he desires, because personally, if he has desires, he could have found a way to get them met without involving me. So I have a little bit of, yeah, I have a little complaint, like the two guys in Kalimpur once philosophizing and one said, you know, seeing as how difficult life is, sometimes I think it would be better to never have been born. And the other guy from Kalimpur says, yeah, but honestly, how many guys do you know who are that lucky? One out of a hundred. <laughs> so, you know. The Tzamech Tzedek actually said, the Ebershter had a taiva and that's our muzzle. So, I think we can compare it to um, to what, we, what you were saying before about not being content with things or not pursuing things, but something more than things. Right. What in, in the physical world, what can we relate to as more than a thing uh, besides uh, concepts? or abstractions. I think the desire to have another in your life, the attraction to another, a human being is not a thing. And if I'm not trying to get something from you, but really are interested in you, that's, that's beyond things. That's actually godlike, because God also needs nothing and yet desires to have someone besides himself, which is us. But then the question is, why couldn't he have had that relationship with angels, with spiritual beings? What are they lacking? Because they're just more of him. They're not other. In other they have words, no freedom of choice. Yeah. In other words, they're lacking being a thing. Being other than. But what makes them more otherly? What their makes own, a person more other than, than, than an angel? The will? Yeah, the ability to either accept God or reject God. What's the difference between Giloy and Etzim? Revelation and essence. Right? A revelation knows its source. Because it just traces itself back up to its source, like a beam of light. If you're seeing the beam of light, just follow it up, you'll find the, the luminary. But a thing, you can't trace it to its source. It hides its source. So he's attracted to, to the thinginess of this, of this world. See, what I've said before is that, you know, that we, we have a problem with getting wrapped up in concrete thinking and only relating to things and we lack the ability to think abstractly and think about ideas i didn't mean that we should go exclusively into the world of ideas to the contrary the the uniqueness of the jewish perspective is that although ideas are incomparably more valuable than things. The greatest expression of any idea is its manifestation as a thing. So what's more important? Surrendering your thoughts 
or a piece of leather. And yet, the ultimate expression of serenity, your thoughts, are through a piece of leather, through the till. So the old, old, and then ultimately that's the paradox. The paradox is the ultimate expression of any abstraction is in the concrete. If you look at the concrete just as a thing, and it doesn't represent more than that. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> A couple of years ago, there was this guy, this Satmar guy in Williamsburg. He put his fill-in down on the, uh, next to the sink, and he went into the bathroom, and there were security cameras that caught it. When he came back, he couldn't find his fill-in. He searched everywhere. He didn't realize that it fell into the garbage. And the fill-in got taken out with the trash, and actually, they didn't realize it for a few days. You remember this a few years ago? Yeah. And they went up to Rochester, I think that's where it was, upstate New York, and they went to the dump. And the non-Jewish people there, the locals, were combing through that garbage dump trying to find this guy's film. That right there shows you the human capacity to appreciate something more than just the physical object. Because if it's just a physical object, tell me how much it's worth and we'll replace it. So did they understand that it's holy? Maybe some of them. At the very least, they understood it had personal value to this person, that was, maybe it was sentimental. But the point is, <clears throat> that was a good example of human beings having the ability to value the abstract. And yet, they were looking for the physical tefillin. It wasn't enough just to value what they represent. They wanted the physical tefillin. And I don't think they found them, by the way, in the end. But the point is that that was even something that human beings would take their time to do, something unpleasant, going through trash. <clears throat> so that shows, that's a good example of appreciating that marriage between the abstract and the concrete. Which really, if you think about it, is every mitzvah. Every mitzvah. The marriage between the abstract and the concrete spiritual material. So introduce the human element here. The human being is certainly not the thing, and it's not the thingness in the human being that God wants. But he wants us once we're in bodies. The body's a thing. And capable of free choice, which is not a thing. Right. But it's thinginess that makes us capable of free choice. Angels live in a world of, of ideals. They can't violate those ideals. We live in a world where thinginess covers up ideals, and therefore we can choose what tastes good instead of what's kosher, for instance. No, we have another option. But the choice and the ability to choose is certainly not a thing. It's, um, it's right. a human almost divine freedom. It's an idea. It's a, it's a power, it's an energy. So in, in some way, the idea that God wants a dwelling place in the lower world, which is what the Alta Rebbe uh, revealed to the world as being the ultimate reason for creation, 
or as you said, for creation of the lower world? What do you need a dwelling place? A dwelling place meaning a private place. God is the creator and the king of the whole world. Why would he want a private place? The metaphor doesn't seem appropriate. So a private place is necessary if you're having a private relationship. So when God says, make me a dwelling place, he doesn't mean build me an apartment. He's just being subtle. <laughs> He's like saying, like if a man would say to a woman, let's build a house. He doesn't mean help me build it and go home. <laughs> right. Let's make a house together. Otherwise, I don't need a house. Right. Or perhaps to be a little bit more crass, when you tell a couple strangers, come on, get a room. Right. Not about the physical space. It's about what you're doing needs a place. Right. Private place. Right. The sacred needs a sacred place. So um, we are mimicking God, actually following the image in which we are created, that for some inexplicable reason, or for no reason at all, actually, even when I need nothing, I still have a desire for someone. Just as God needs nothing and yet has a desire for someone. And then if you ask, why does he have that desire? The answer is, why, why do you have your desire? It's a desire, but at least now we know what the desire is for. It's not just for an apartment. And that's what the Torah is saying quite explicitly. Build me a house so I can dwell with you, not with it. <clears throat> these, are, these are pretty earth-shaking, uh, life-changing. Anything else? You know, there's uh, the Talmud that talks about one of... One of uh, the details of it's, it's uh, talking about uh, in the tractate Megillah, it's talking about the Purim story. And Esther, it was just her mazel that when it was her turn to be tested out by the, by the king, it was Tavis. Tavis is the, the coldest month of the year. So the, the wording there is that it's the Chaydish, the, the month, Shavuf Nena Minaguf that a body gets benefit from another body because it's cold. So you need somebody else's 98.6. Chassidus talks about the king, the king is a byword for the king of the whole world. But the body gets benefit from a body. Obviously, Hashem has no body in the sense of a physical body, but, but what it means is the way this explains it is that Atmos, Hashem's essence, not not the glow, not the not the ray of godliness, but his essence and being as he is, gets pleasure from having a relationship with something that is seeming it seems to be as autonomous as he is. 
And that's the embodied soul. Not the soul in heaven, the embodied soul. The pleasure comes when the soul is in a body. When the idea of you, which is your soul, meaning all your potentials and all your talents and all your abilities and your mission, that's, that's the idea of you, is placed into this thing called you. William Mayo from the Mayo Clinic, he wrote an article in the American Medical Journal back in the 30s, and he spoke about how a human being is worth 34 cents. He said if you take all the chemicals, you know, the phosphorus and the potassium and the sodium, and you sell them as commodities on the open market, human beings worth 34 cents. Okay, so with inflation today, I think it's like $8. He meant it tongue-in-cheek, but the, the idea is if you're a pure materialist, and you only see the thinginess of physicality, then human life is cheap. In fact, there is no human life. Just some bodies are walking around and some bodies are dead. And, but yet, if you do the reverse, if you make the reverse error, that the reverse error would be not over-focusing on the thinginess of the person, but over-focusing on the, the idea of the person. So in, in that case, you could be a brain in a jar will upload your brain to a computer and will bury your body and will keep you going because the idea of you will continue. And yet Hashem wants to have a relationship with the idea of you as it is in the thing, the body of you. That, that's his desire. See, it's... it's, it's Things normally cover up ideas. You know, it's like you have a deep, you're having a deep discussion, but then you remember you're hungry and you have to deal with your physical needs and then you forget about the discussion. Or, or you know, your body has a desire, so you forget momentarily about right and wrong. You don't ask yourself, is this in keeping with my principles? You just think, well, it feels good. So things cover up ideas. And yet... Maybe it's precisely because things normally cover and conflict with ideas that the ultimate expression of an idea is when it's manifest as a thing, which is why a mitzvah is really only a mitzvah when it's physically an action. And it's also why you, as the beloved of Hashem, are really only you, not when you are the idea of you. The idea of you existed before you were born. In fact, the idea of you existed before the world was created. Hashem created the world in order to have a physical forum within which to have a relationship with you in a body. So the idea of you is old. And it wasn't enough. It didn't, it didn't satisfy his desire. He, want, he wanted to meet you as, as a body. So you, you could fall into either extreme. You know, when you look at someone just as a body, as a piece of meat, right? Whether, you know, that, that's the most crass way. You're just looking at somebody for their physical body. Okay. But then, then there's, you know, not just their, their body, but like the things they own, their possessions. You know, uh, they're rich. They have, or, or maybe a little bit more abstract. They have social standing. But these are all body-related things. The, the, that has to do with your thinginess, the thing of you. And then the idea of you is like, well, you know, what's abstractly important about you? Like, you know, what's the purpose of your life? 
What's your mission in this world? So, you know, if I were to tell you, I'm, I, I only want you for your body. I don't care about what your, what your life is about. That's obviously not a relationship. But what if I would tell you, I only want to know what your life is about. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to take place in physical terms. It can be conceptual. Maybe for us humans, we, we, we would see that as holy because, you know, we have such a weakness for getting overly, we, the occupational hazard, we tend to get more wrapped up in the physical and forget the spiritual. We don't tend to have so much a problem getting wrapped up in the spiritual and forgetting the material. They're both dangers, but to be honest, the one that we're more liable to, to, to have problems with is, 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 the, is the former, not the latter. But at any rate, ne neither of them are what God wants. So another way to say this is, and maybe, maybe this, is, this is a side point, and maybe this is the point, but God really, I called it a paradox before. You could also call it a high-risk investment. Because if you want to know who I really am, let's not get distracted with thinginess. It could, be, it could consume our attention to the point where we, be, we, we lose sight of what it's really all about. You know, let's keep it pure. Let's keep it platonic, you know, like in the sense of Plato, philosophy, platonic relationship. Just two philosophers hanging out and talking about ideas. And not, let's not dirty it up with, with anything carnal. And yet, Hashem chose the Jewish bodies, and Hashem gave the Torah in this world. And then the Torah talks about all these things that we do in this world with our bodies. So what's up with that? I mean, I think this is what's uniquely Jewish. Is that we can't have one without the other. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman. Changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world. Let's change the world.